my job is not who I am. So I thought, until you don't have that job. And then it really is the questioning of identity. And then you deal with the, I'm gonna go home and tell my three kids I got fired. And I think people don't talk about that part of what that feels like. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey, everyone. Our guest today is Bella Bejeria. She is the vice president of global television for Netflix, where she oversees English language and local language scripted and unscripted series around the world. So basically all TV, including hit shows like Bridgerton and The Queen's Gambit. Prior to Netflix, Bella was president of Universal Television, where she made history as the first woman of color to oversee a studio. Bella, we're excited to have you here. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to do this. Okay, so first question, we've seen your formal resume and your LinkedIn, and obviously Danielle just read you know, a little bit about it, but what is something that we couldn't find in your formal resume that we should know about you? So I guess the one thing people probably don't know about me is that I'm a huge soccer fan. I'm obsessed with the U.S. women national team. Who's your favorite player? I'm going to say, so Megan Rapinoe has been my favorite player. And I'm going to say was also my favorite player before the last World Cup, where I think other people discovered her. I had seen her in prior World Cup. So you're no Fairweather fan. I am an OG fan and I have a jersey from way back when. I just love that team, what they represent on the field, off the field. Did you grow up playing soccer? I didn't. I wish I did. So I want to start with your childhood. We love starting, you know, how people grew up and their relationship with their parents because it shapes so much about who each of us are and who we become. Walk us through just how you grew up and your kind of family dynamic. So I have an interesting background. So I'm Indian. My parents are from East Africa. I was born in London, lived in Africa when I was young, and then moved to America when I was nine. And... That kind of push-pull for me growing up in America with the East versus West and really the cultural push-pull was, I think, very defining for me in many ways. I'm very close to my family. I grew up in a very, very big, sort of strong Indian community, extended family. It takes a village. Everything's very communal. So I think it's very, it was very impactful for me as far as growing up and very defining for who I am and became in many ways, even in the workplace. What was entertainment for you growing up? It was different because my family watched a lot of Bollywood content and listened to a lot of Indian music right in the house. So it wasn't really the strong kind of Western influence in that way. But I think for me, so when I moved to the U.S., I was nine. I was Indian and I had a British accent. And, you know, it was weird to have both of those things at that time when all you want to do is assimilate, right, and blend in at that age. And so I ended up watching a lot of television to really get rid of my British accent. 
and to really understand sort of this American culture part of it. And so for me, I watched Bewitched and Dynasty and, you know, so many different shows that I ended up like watching a lot of TV personally, mostly for the accent first to really sort of learn just kind of the American way and then a little bit for the culture. So we weren't really big movie going family because it was really a lot about Bollywood for my sort of parents and kind of family. So it was really varied between watching many different things and we still had a British sort of thing. So we'd watch, you know, a lot of the UK television. So it really does a dovetail to my job today. I really grew up watching lots of different things from different places. I take it your family was not surprised then that you ended up in entertainment? You know, they were surprised because for an Indian woman to go into Hollywood 25 years ago, right, was not a very, wasn't a common thing at all. There weren't Indian people in the business. There's very few, any diverse sort of people in the business at that time. So it was very off the beaten path. I think for, right, I'm not even just a daughter of immigrants. I am an immigrant. So I think sort of my generation going into something that risky was unusual. And, you know, many of my peers got those proper degrees and were doctors and lawyers and many things that feel safer. And so I think sort of overall, just even in the Indian community and extended family, it seemed like a very risky job to go do. And and people didn't understand, right, what it was. I barely understood, right, when I got into the business, what Hollywood and what entertainment meant. But it was very off the beaten path for me to do that. What do you think drove you to it? Connect the dots for us between graduating school and then getting your foot in the door where you didn't choose the safe path. So I think I didn't choose the safe path also because I think for me growing up, I had always fought against and questioned the traditional cultural expectation of gender norms. So, right, to be an Indian woman, right? Are you obedient enough and are you quiet enough and are you going to be marriage material? And there were so many things that I always sort of questioned growing up. And I loved so much about the culture, but I always sort of pushed back against this box that people wanted to put me in, right? I spoke too much. I spoke too often. I spoke too loud. (laughs) There was a lot of things that I really pushed against. So for me, I felt like kind of the non-traditional path for me personally didn't seem so crazy because I was always kind of pushing back against that. I always remember that storytelling. I, I remember different moments where I loved like seeing that all these people are watching this thing at the same time. Right, so many different people are being impacted by the story, whether it's powerful and provocative and emotional or just sort of entertaining. But I loved the idea that many different people watch this one sort of story and are impacted at the same time. So I think for me, that was always the drive to be in entertainment. I have a great appreciation for writers. I absolutely admire the craft. I don't know how to write, direct, act. I've never wanted to do those things. I don't know how to do those things. But I really loved this idea of storytelling it sort of this big, in this big scale. So I want to talk about getting your foot in the door. Walk us through like how you did that. It's obviously a very competitive industry to begin with, let alone when you don't see a lot of people that look like you. Walk us through just getting your foot in the door. 
So I had written letters because it was back in the day where you had to write and mail letters. I had written a, like an, an informational letter, right? Looking for a general meeting. And I had written to, there was a thing called the Hollywood Creative Directory back then, which was really every production company, every studio network. And I wrote a letter to every one of them, small, big, every company of just looking for a general. And I had a few callbacks for generals, too, actually, and CBS was one of them. And it was a general meeting with somebody in the story department. And I met with her and she said, we don't have anything, but there's an executive in the TV movie and minis series department who hasn't hired an assistant in a year. And she's very particular and she could be difficult to work with, but she's looking and I wasn't deterred by that as a description of the job. And I interviewed for that job as an assistant in the TV movie department. I interviewed with her five times in person. I did a four-page essay question, answer, test. Are you serious? To, yes, to be her assistant. And she still wasn't sure. And I had said to her, you haven't had an assistant for a year. We can do a trial period, right? Fire me in three months if, if I'm not great. But at this point, you also have just temp, so you might as well give me a shot. And she did. And that was my first job in the business. But what interesting thing I will say about the essay questions story is that when I moved up and got promoted and I had to replace myself, she still had this essay question that people would come in to interview and 60% of the people walked out the door and didn't even do it because they were too intimidated by that. And it was an interesting thing to say, well, if this intimidates you and you won't even do this, like, should you actually work here? It's actually funny you say that we like require for all jobs, we do a homework assignment of some kind because you do weed out people in doing that. So I agree with you on that. Obviously, it was an excessive interview process for you. But I actually, I really want to unpack that moment because there's sort of two things that stand out to me for those that are listening, especially if they're, it's their first jobs. I was giving advice to a family friend recently who's entry level and was talking about a job that actually is an assistant job at a company. And, and she said, but I don't want to be an assistant. And I want to stop there because I'm curious what your advice would be to anyone today who's like, I want to get my foot in the door, but I don't like this job description. So I think, right, you have to just get in the door. And I always say, right, whatever that job is, that career is, right, the division is, the careers you want to do, you have to get in the door. And once you're in and you work hard and you meet people, but you have to get in and people are not going to hire you at the middle level if you don't have experience doing it from the beginning. I also think assistants, especially in entertainment, have all the access. When you are an assistant, you are on the phone, you are the first person who gets the script, you are the first person that gets notified, you are the first person on the phone, you schedule the meetings, you know all the players. And I think it's an incredible opportunity. But I also think you have to use it. I think people go into it and think, oh, I'm an assistant, I'm doing an administrative work. Well, you're an assistant who has access to all of the information to learn. And I decided, and I made a commitment to myself, that for a year and a half working in my first assistant job, I would be a sponge. I would read everything, I would watch everything, and I would learn everything that was available to me. And I had read all of the scripts of my bosses and sort of done that. I went down the cubicle road, I went down to the next executive, and I asked to read every single executive script. Back then, we also made 
65 movies and six or seven miniseries a year. So I read thousands of scripts because we had so much development. And so to me, it's that it's such a great opportunity to be an assistant because you actually have access to all the information. It just depends on if you're actually paying attention to it. The second question I have around that is it takes a lot of guts to say what you said to who eventually became your boss to be like, hey, just like try me out. You can fire me if you want to. I don't think I would have had the guts to say that at, you know, whatever age we're talking about. And I want to sort of get into your head a little bit because we talk a lot about confidence on this show and just where did that confidence come from to say that even? And then how did you approach the job? Walk us through kind of your mindset, basically knowing you were in a trial period and like, spoiler alert, you ended up getting quite a big job at CBS. So it obviously worked out and you're on the podcast today. So walk walk us through how that sort of evolved. So I think I was able to have that conversation and say, right, take a chance on me because I feel like I had been sort of finding my own voice for so long. Am I Indian? Am I American? How do I do the individual versus the community? How do I balance both? Who am I? Nobody before me in my family had done that, right? They hadn't lived in America, so we hadn't had that. So I still think so much of fighting for my individuality and figuring out who I was really helped that because I had sort of questioned and fought and thought and really figuring out what space I was going to occupy and what that looked like and how could I be both of those things, American and also Indian. And so I do feel like the confidence at that point also came because I had done a lot of work to get to that point, right? Of really trying to figure out who I was and owning that. I also had an advantage because I had like a three-year period where I worked in a nonprofit. And at that point, I had already been in the nonprofit world. I had traveled to different countries and I really felt like I had been in the world. I didn't go right from school right to that job. So I felt like I just had better skill set in just communication in real life. And so I think for me at that point, you know, the confidence came from having done other things and finding my own voice for as many years as I did until that point. How I approached the job, it's funny because I started, they're like, okay, start tomorrow. I didn't know one thing about the entertainment industry. I mean, nothing. And I was speaking to a entertainment graduate college class recently. And I said, here's the thing. You know way more today than I ever knew the first day I had a job. Like they just know much more about the business than I did. And I really just was like, okay, I'll do good old fashioned work ethic. And that was the promise I made to myself. I'm here, so I'm gonna learn everything around me. I'd never been in that environment before. I had no access to that before. And so I really just dove in and I read and I listened and I spoke to a lot of people and I paid attention. And I really was just gonna like, I'm gonna teach myself. After rising through the ranks at CBS, you ended up becoming the president of Universal Television. Big job. And then you ultimately got let go from the network. We've talked to a lot of women on the show who have had that experience. I want you to literally like put us in your shoes in that moment of getting let go. Just what was that moment like for you? It was, okay, we're going to get real here. Let's do it. Okay. When I got into the business, my entire goal in the business, job-wise, dream job, was to run a television studio. So 
Comcast buys NBC Universal. I get offered this job. I'm running Universal Television, right? Dream job. And at that point, we had to rebuild it. So I hired every single person, started the entire studio again. So this was five years into it. Lots of success with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and the Mindy Project and Chicago Fire, and it's all going swimmingly, so you think. There was definitely tension between studio and network, which does happen, and there was definitely tension in that way, so I knew that existed. And I got fired. And, you know, I think what is hard is you just feel like, wait, I built this amazing team. We've had this success. I care so much about the company. I care so much about the people. I care so much about the business. And it was really gut punch. And it was complicated. First of all, you feel failure and you're trying to right reconcile. I treated people well. I was fair to people. We did great business. Like, you know, and they don't square up to getting fired the way you believe you acted and how successful sort of the company was to that. And so it's the rejection. It's dealing with failure of what that means. And then just regular livelihood, right? It's your career. But I care deeply about the studio and I care deeply about the people. And I also felt very personally invested because I had hired every one of those people. And so it really felt like my own business being taken away from me. And it was devastating in so many ways. And it was the best learning experience I've ever had in my personal or professional life. Because I'm super close to my family. I have a great community. I care about so many, you know, philanthropy things. There's lots of things in my life. And my job is not who I am. So I thought, until you don't have that job. And then it really is the questioning of identity. And then you deal with the, I'm going to go home and tell my three kids I got fired. And I think people don't talk about that part of what that feels like. For those that are listening who have had their own experiences or will face their own experiences with a moment like that at work, What is like your very tactical advice of what to do next? What I learned once I did that was you have to go through the roller coaster of emotions, right? So what happens is the instinct is I'm going to find another job. I'm just going to jump in. I'm going to find another job, which will be validating. And there's just a practical, right, that you need another job. And what I realized was I needed to take a step back, chill out, like really absorb, go through the emotions of rejection, failure, anger, all of those things, and really just take a step back and settle. Get off the hamster wheel for a minute and really sort of take that time, like absorb and be, and I did that for a month probably, and I felt amazing at the end of the month. I took the lessons, what I wanted to be, what kind of job, why did I do that? What did I learn from it? I really took the time to learn from it. So I take the two tactical things for me were that one, you have to take the time and you got to go through it. You can't just push it aside. You actually have to go through what it is because I think then you really come out stronger on the other end for sure. And the second thing was I have kids, right? Other people may or may not, but it's whoever's in your life or yourself. I really looked and said, I want to model this in a way that will teach them something, that you get back up, 
and you go do some amazing next thing. And what do I want to show them? I want to show them that failure happens and you learn from it and you get back up. And for me, it was important that I showed up that way for my kids and that they saw me handle it that way. That doesn't mean it was all perfect and I handled it with, you know, grace and no emotion around it, but it was that, you know what, this happens. And I wanted that to be the most important lesson that came out of it. And by the way, I ended up in Netflix. I ended up with a bigger dream job than the dream job I thought I wanted. And so my story ends well there, but I think the learning, I wouldn't trade for anything at this point. So I want to talk about ending up at Netflix. And I think kind of the bridge between the disappointment that you just mentioned and a a new exciting job is how to use a network, use your own network of connections of when you leave a job, how to maintain and grow that network so that it leverages into something else, especially when you're leaving a role that, you know, maybe it didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. How do do you use your network? What is your advice for those who are in a similar situation so that you do end up at the dream job again? So I was really fortunate with the amount of relationships I had throughout my entire career. And what you realize is when you say, oh, all those shows and all those people and all those relationships, see in the end of it, it, you know, does it matter? I still got fired. And what you realize is it does matter because all of those people remember, right? That you're an advocate. All those people remember that you were fair. All those people, right, remember those things. And so after I was, right, I reached out and kept in touch and many people sort of called me. And even in the time where I wanted space and time to really digest, I kind of kept in touch with people. And what I did was I was really open to the next thing. And I wasn't going to predetermine what the next thing was. And when somebody said, hey, I know somebody who's doing this other thing, which seems like a job I would never do. I still met with them because I wanted to be in a really exploration part. What if like some other thing comes up that I don't know what the next thing is? Always take the meeting. (laughs) Always take the meeting because the meeting just was like, I learned interesting things that people were doing. I met new people because I had time to actually do that. And to always take the meeting, even though you don't think that's, oh, I don't want that job. That's fine. Go learn something, go meet somebody, expand your network. And I thought that was a really sort of interesting time to kind of do that and keep in touch with the network, expand the network, but also be open to what the next thing is because a lot of these businesses change rapidly. You don't know what the next thing is. If I look at my self and my first day of my job in the business where my dream was to run a studio. If this job that I had today existed, this would have been the dream job that I would always wanted, right? So it didn't exist. This job never existed before. So your job today, you got a fancy title, fancy company. I think a lot of people are wondering, what is your job actually every day? What do you do every day? (laughs) What do I do every day? It's a head of global TV, which means that we have amazing executives and teams on the ground in many different countries, making shows in many different languages that make our members happy to watch. And it's managing teams. You know, I think probably top line my job every day is to make sure that we're creating a great environment for people internally in Netflix, but also the creators we work with to do the best work of their lives. And that means to be creative and supported and inspired and ultimately to give sort of this global platform. But really every day is to sort of manage teams and shows and to make sure that we're just telling great stories. 
I feel like, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of your job is advocating for a project and getting buy-in around it. Is there a show that no one else saw the potential in, but you saw and you, you were right? I'd say probably when I was at Universal, the Mindy Project got passed on from NBC and I just believed in her and the show. And then it got passed on, you know, we had it at Fox and then it got passed on and then I sold it to Hulu. Like I always believed and at the end of it, I think the show went on for 116 episodes or like a lot of episodes. So I felt like that was one that I always sort of believed in her, her voice and the show. And I was sort of right about that. When I think about making decisions, for me personally, like in my day-to-day job, a lot of the decisions I make tend to be intuitive and presented the data, but I I have actually to train myself to think more data oriented because so much of how I live is very intuitive. For you, how much of your decision-making is data versus gut? For me, it really is gut. I've just been in the creative business that it's gut, it's intuition. You hear a pitch, you hear something that inspires you. It speaks to you in that way. It has that vision and you just back it. Because there's not, if you look at sort of, you know, my job, there's not any data that would have said that Queen's Gambit would have captured the hearts and minds of the amount of people that did globally. A period show about a woman playing chess, right? There's not sort of any data that could sort of line that up. So for me, it really is about connection and intuition and gut. It's amazing that we have access to a lot of data and that can kind of help like, you know, business and growth in countries. But it really, for me, is has to be about gut. You talked about your role in some ways being kind of inspiring this creativity and an environment where creatives can thrive. How have you been able to do that with people working remotely? I think that, you know, it's hard and it's different for everyone. But what we found is that it's especially difficult if your job is to be collaborative that the brainstorming, the creative process, it's just harder doing it this way. It is harder. And I think that collaboration and the brainstorming and having that kind of environment is a better experience, I think, for everybody in person. That's not for every job, but I think in that way in storytelling and where we're talking about writers and shows and just having those hallway conversations, actually that thing you say right before a meeting or right when you're walking out, right, sometimes is that kind of germ of an idea that sparks something. Look, in some ways at Netflix, we're fortunate that because we're a global company, a lot of the meetings that we've done, that we do anyways before pandemic are virtual because right, we have offices in, in countries around the world. And so we are used to doing businesses this way. We do have teams in sort of some local countries that can be together and still have that experience because everybody's at a different place sort of pandemic wise. But what we really have tried to do is to do some smaller meetings or to do a place where we just say, okay, let's just talk like, right. How's everybody feeling? Like just providing some other space that it can be a little bit more conversational, right? We definitely have like a one-on-one culture in certain meetings that are really just trying to connect. And all the teams, I think, did a very good job of like really connecting on a human level. Let's make space to share things personally, what's going on at home. That is the interesting thing of the pandemic, right? You definitely got like actual a visual peek (laughs) into many people's personal lives. So we've tried to sort of make space and time for that. So hopefully that helps. But I still think it's really hard to beat an in-person, creative, collaborative environment. Okay, we're going to move on to the lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. 
what has replaced your morning commute? Oh, <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing? I'm doing nothing. I'm not. It's a little more time to drink a cup of coffee. That's a good replacement. Okay. I feel funny asking you this because we ask everyone this. We always ask, what is the last show you binge watched? But you are like the only one who we should really ask. So what's the last show you binge watched? So the last show I personally binge watched was Sky Rojo, which was our recent show out of Spain that we launched last weekend. Should I watch it? You definitely should watch it. Will there be a Sweet Magnolia season two? There will be. Am I supposed to say that? I don't even know. Go with it because I'm very happy. When is Virgin River coming back? This year. Okay, thank you. We should have just started the interview with these questions. How many hours a week do you watch TV? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard one because I watch cuts probably more than just like watch TV. You know, look, I'm a fan of the medium. I want to know what other people are doing. I'm interested in a lot of work that other people do. So I wish I had more time to watch more TV, actually, because there's so much great content. But usually I'm trying to watch sort of a cut or an episode of each country, right, when we're making so many shows. So many, many hours. What is your biggest vice? How do you relax? You know, I'd say a nice glass of Brunello, but I don't think it's a vice. I don't think that's a vice. That's a way of life. That's aspirational. That's not a vice. So, okay. See, even this, I'm going to say it's not a, like, perfection. Brunello and potato chips, Brunello and french fries, even not a vice. I want to hang out with you. All right. Well, last question. Who else should we have on the show? Well, you already had Kara Swisher, who I would have recommended, because I think she, and she clearly was a great interview. Shonda Rhimes. We support that. We'd love to. Well, Bella, thank you so much for sharing your story. You have a great journey and we love watching what you're doing. Literally watching what you're doing. (laughs) Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 